Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. And all of a sudden, it's just sort of alpha male dominance. And you pull up and the waves are dangerous. You're no longer catching the best waves every day. You have to fight for everything you get. And uh, it's as close as sort of that like Roman gladiator pit as anything. And I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. Hawaii's North Shore has some of the most celebrated surf breaks in the world. During the winter, the best professional surfers on the planet are concentrated into a handful of beachfront rentals within a few hundred yards of each other. These houses are the closest thing to an actual backstage that exists on the North Shore. It's the birthplace of modern surfing, but much of the action takes place outside of the public's eye. Today's guest has had a front row seat to the North Shore since a very young age. He starred in Endless Summer 2, competed on the world tour, worked as a marketing director for Hurley, served as senior vice president of competition for the World Surf League, and he's currently president of two-time world champion surfer John John Florence's company, Florence Marine X. 
During his tenure as a professional surfer and later as an industry executive, he's acquired an insider's perspective into the idiosyncratic nuances of surf culture and the business behind it. But even though he knows where the metaphorical bodies are buried, you'd never suspect it from his trademark optimism and laugh. So what's it like investing so much passion into a particular brand only to have outside market forces dismantle what you've built? We'll find out as we sit down for a chat with this Momentum Generation alum and surf industry veteran. Today, surfer, executive, Chicago native, and eternally stoked Grom at heart, Mr. Pat O'Connell. Pat O'Connell, great to see you, man. Thanks for taking time out. I really appreciate it. Anytime, buddy. I think we've had a couple false starts due to flus. We have. And I've got the, well, recovering from the flu and... Um, yeah, we've had a, a, a bouncy start, but it's good to see you, buddy. Yeah, it's thing is it's a sign of the time. So I think everyone's become much more flexible with uh, rescheduling these days. Yeah. Um, well, I want to jump right in. So as you know, I released a photography book a few years ago called HI1K, 10 Years, 1,000 Moments on the North Shore. And it's basically just like a chronicle of me spending 10 winters on the North Shore and just kind of documenting the surf culture. And the North Shore can be a really difficult place for an outsider to kind of have a local experience. And you were so gracious. You were one of the first people to be kind of an ambassador for me and to introduce me to some really key people and to dial me into the community and open some doors. So I just wanted to start by giving you credit for that and just saying thank you Uh, one more time because you were really instrumental in that book. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And it was, uh, look, it was, it's so cool to see the book and, and the experiences and things that you did capture uh, through that time, like I was blown away, just like just the, um, you know, it's Hawaii, as you said, can be, it can be a hard nut to crack. And, um, you know, I grew up uh, going what, at an early age to Hawaii every winter and it wasn't easy at first. It was a little bit scary. Um, the waves are scary. The surroundings, you know, you start from in California, you may be sort of the big fish in the pond, the best surfer at the beach or whatever, however you fit into your ecosystem uh, at home. And all of a sudden it's just sort of alpha male dominance and you pull up and the waves are dangerous. You're no longer catching the best waves every day. Um, You have to fight for everything you get. And uh, it's as close as sort of that like Roman gladiator pit as, uh, as anything. And it is very difficult even for someone shooting photos, whatever, to find their way in because there's also a level of distrust. There's a lot of people who um, over the years have kind of, they, everybody's sort of like, you're, you know, looking to be like, Hey, um, who, who is this guy coming to hang out and you need to have a, an in. So yeah, I was happy to do it. And, and I think everybody was like, the images are incredible and you've probably. Thank you. Had great, great relationships since. I have. I mean, there's a really funny story in the book, and I I talk about it in the introduction. So it was literally, I think, my second day on the North Shore. I was at your house over at V-Land. Robin Chato was there. A couple other surf luminaries dropped by, and I was really like, wow, this is so cool. And at some point, you'd invite me to go to dinner with you guys at Haleiwa Joe's. And I played it cool. I was like, yeah, I'll just, I'll drive my car and I'll meet you there. And then, of course, went in my car and like Googled Haleiwa Joe's (laughs) trying to find the directions. Like, Full, full Howley, just like fresh off the boat. Um, but I pull up to the parking lot and I see this like familiar bald head. And at the time I just met Blair Marlin and he had his head shaved 
And uh, I remember thinking, I was like kind of proud of myself. I was like, man, I've been on the North Shore two days. I'm already running into people in parking lots. I'm kind of feeling good about myself. And so I run up and I slap him on the back and say, hey, what's up? He turns around. It's not Blair Marlin. It's Kelly, it's Kelly Slater. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I was mortified. Um, and the funny part, the funny part was that he was there to actually meet you as well. And we all sat at the same table and, and it turned out to be okay. But what it really did is just showcase how tight knit and small of a surf community is in Hawaii. Once you kind of are traveling in a certain circle, have you found that it's changed a lot significantly in the last 10 years or do you still find it like that? So it's a really great question. Cause I think as the world has changed, um, you know, we've also gotten 10 years older. And so sometimes I, I feel like, Hey, it's just expanding so fast and things are changing. And sometimes I feel like maybe it's lost that sort of interconnective thing. I don't think it has. I think it feels that fresh and new for all the kids, just the same as it did for you or I, I just think we've, as you grow older, you find your way. And, and, you know, even for me today, like Hawaii is sort of a second home, um, my friends are just older and we still do this, a lot of the same things, but we interact differently. So I think for the kids, it's as fresh and new and fun um, as it ever has been. And I'm not the old curmudgeon that sort of is like, oh, it used to be better. And yeah. in my, it, hey, for me personally, it might've used to be better. You know, um, I had more free time. I was able to do other things, but you know, um, the, the North Shore is very clicky. And I think it's just a, I always think that the, like you go to these places and there's a small subset of the global community, right? And you, you know, you find people that hang out together. And I just think it's, it's a, the things that have changed radically on the North shore, um, the actual like industry and how people interact, like the surf industry used to be this big behemoth that actually played a pretty heavy, had a heavy hand on the North shore, uh, feels like today that is, um, has changed. Maybe it's less is, impactful as it used to be the way the events are run are different now but i think that the excitement and stoke and the idea of going to hawaii and that same thing that you experienced of trying to find your way in and like i think that's the same so we had a book launch party at um, the sugar mill john paisel was nice enough to host it for us and it was it was an incredibly special night for me just to get to share that book with people who appreciated it and have so many people from the book be there but there was one point where we were doing a talk story that John had set up and it was like me, Brian Bielman, Tom Survey, and we all just kind of threw some pictures up and we're telling stories about what they meant to us. And Tom was speaking and he can be, you know, kind of a quiet guy. And at one point he put up this picture and it was basically, yeah, this is Tom Curran doing a cutback at Backdoor. And before he could go to the next picture, there's like this, hey, whoa, whoa, stop, stop, stop from the back of the room. It's Benji Weatherly. He runs up grabs the mic from Tom and basically pulls a Kanye and was like, Tom, <laughs> I'm so incredibly offended at the lack of credit that you're giving yourself for this photo. Like this picture changed my life and made me want to be Tom Kern and made me want to surf a certain way. And, you know, it was a really funny moment. It was a trademark, you know, hilarious Benji Weatherly moment. But, you know, more importantly, it just kind of speaks to the power of surf imagery, you know, and, and the ability that it has to shape an entire generation of like how they want to be and how they want to surf and aspirations of style. You, you put that in today's perspective, print media is basically dead. Yeah. Feature length films like in the summer two or some of the movies, the momentum movies that you're in with Taylor, it seems like they've largely been, been replaced with 
Instagram clips or maybe a 15 minute drop on YouTube. Uh, And, you know, even though the surfing itself is progressing at a ridiculous rate, like has, has the culture of surf atrophied a little bit as a result of, of some of those changes? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I sort of touched on this quickly, but just, um, I think it's interesting because through, um, again, my career in time in, in surfing, I've been fortunate enough to see sort of these real highs and, and some lows in, in the industry and sport itself. Um, one of the things that you're seeing, and when I said that the industry has lost its sort of uh, a fingerprint on the North Shore, the industry, like the, the brands themselves are being driven by venture capitalists or, and or were public for a period of time. There's nothing against that. I have zero problem with that. I'll be super clear. Where where you lose is when you don't have people who have authenticity that are in the mix that are driving direction and or connection into these places and giving an opportunity for kids to chase their dream and and do these things because ultimately the sport is in the hands of the kids. And so as we're getting older, we need to shepherd them in the right way. And so there's a the the culture of hey, uh, Instagram, we're just putting things out. That is the world that we're living in today. And there's a, there has to be a, a blend of both. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, that sort of authentic um, person still, still stands out. Like, I guess, like, if I really think about it, like, and again, I'm a, uh, in, the, in the John John camp, but like John is, he's very good about kind of holding some things back. I think on the other side, his brother, Nathan, puts a lot of stuff out. But it's very freaking cool and it is so rad. And he's, and so I think it's really about being, if you're sort of, uh, how do I say this? The authentic connection to people, if you're doing it right, is still there. I think people can see through the crap. There's just a lot more of it. Yeah. I mean, there seems like there's a lot of forces outside of, the industry itself that are affecting these cultural changes, whether it's like, you know, social media or even, you know, Cafe Haliva. I remember that first trip there. That used to be the spot for pro surfers and surf fans to mingle. I mean, if you went and got pancakes at Cafe Haliva on a Sunday morning, like you would see see five of the best surfers in the world. And it seems like, you know, now on the North Shore, if it's flat, you don't see kids driving 15 minutes to go to cafe. They're usually in their bedrooms on Instagram or editing clips. I mean, that may be an exaggeration, but, but is it? Well, I think what you're seeing a little bit too is, um, and I think this can be seen as a positive, is a little bit more of a professional take where surfing was like our group, it, w- it meant so much, but it, it was also somewhat social. You find that the best surfers are now pretty well into their training regimen. Um, they might not be as social as, uh, you know, they have their program in, on that same day that the waves are flat, they might be running on the beach, uh, you know, doing something that isn't sitting at cafe. So I think that's just a little bit of the generation. I think that the level has gone so high now that I see that kids are training more and they're, you know, like, so, cause I can, I can flip it too is say, Hey, the, there's not as much drugs in the sport. I think kids are generally staying away from it. Um, there's not as many kids drinking and all that. Everything is like, there's a little bit more of a focused lifestyle happening. You know, when I first started, shoot, you know, drinking was like a part of the training regimen. I mean, it was, uh, 
12 ounce curls. <laughs> so that's, that's interesting perspective. I, I didn't really think about that. So you're, you're kind of attributing to a degree the, the change in the hangout culture, for lack of a better word, is them putting more emphasis on, on, you know, training and personal health as opposed to a breakdown in like this culture of surfing where people just are like isolated and want to spend time by themselves. Look, I mean, um, it's not a, it's not a well thought out argument, you know, as you brought it up, I, that was just, but, but I, in my mind, I'm like, Hey, kids are more healthy than, and they're more focused on being healthy than they've ever been. Performance means more than it's ever been. We would have back when I was a kid, I would have thought that I'm doing a lot of the things right, but, and I might, I might've done a couple days in the gym or something, but these kids now, like it's a different level and yeah. their behaviors are going to be a little bit different. Yeah. They probably spend too much time on their phone. I think most kids do at these ages and you know, it's the way people communicate. I mean, shoot the way people communicate is different. I mean, yeah, it's a trip. I, and I think it goes back to kind of how you started is like asking, Hey, has it changed? Like, the way the North shore is. And that's kind of the epicenter for surfing. It has for older people. We communicate the way that we like to communicate. We're doing what we're doing, but I still think for the kids, that same feeling is there. You still get that rush when you get to the beach and you, and a kid sees the North shore sees pipeline for the first time and is trying to figure it out. It's that same, it's that same thing. They just experience it a little bit. It's coming at them in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the beauty of the North Shore that I've experienced is that even in the you know, 10, 12 years that I was going there, which is a relatively short amount of time in, in the grand scheme of things, but I've noticed so many cultural changes in that period. But the one thing that remains the same is the reason that people are there in the first place, like the waves. The waves are, your pipeline is basically the same waves it was in the 60s when people rolled up and tried to serve it for the first time. Yeah, hasn't it hasn't changed. And it's interesting too, if you've spent... You know, um, I've spent so much time that the beach changes radically. And, you know, um, last summer I was snorkeling with my son, who's eight years old, at Pipeline. And it's the safest place to snorkel. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, uh, six months later, it's uh, you wouldn't put anybody out there with the, yeah. So that was one thing uh, that struck me as strange, too. Like even not only six months later, but depending on the swell direction, I remember sometimes like, you know, Pipeline will be firing and then you go to YMA and you're like, wait, people drown here? What? <laughs> it's like, it's very bizarre. It's so bizarre. Swell direction makes like, yeah, even days, uh, you know, I think back to, to days when they ran the pipe masters where there's a lot of north in the swell, which makes the, the swell focus, you know, 50, 100 yards down the beach towards off the wall. And these giant 12 to 15 foot waves are coming in at off the wall and it's four foot at pipeline. And people are standing on the beach and there's the pipe masters going. They're like, wait a second, isn't that pipeline? Yeah. And you're like, no, it's actually right there. And it just looks so, yeah, it doesn't look like it should be. You know, and I think that's the thing is when you do get to the beach there and you do see the scale of everything is very different. It's pipeline is just a little piece of reef. And it's beautiful. I mean, I think one of the reasons that it attracted me to shoot a project there is that there's like this really strange dichotomy in that, on one hand, you can roll up on a tour bus with a fanny pack and sit on the beach and see the best surfing in the world for free, you know, 50 feet from where you're standing. But there's a threshold for how much farther you can really get into that culture. You know, there's the staircases and the houses and, and, and those lawns and patios. And like, 
you're not really invited up there, you know? And, and you get the sense that I got the sense immediately of like, wow, that, that's where I want to be. That's what I want to document. That's the story, you know? That is the story. And you did a good job of that. Appreciate it. Yeah. So um, I want to talk about Florence Marine X for a minute. Um, I'm a big fan of the brand. I want, actually, that coat you're wearing right now, I'm going to hit you up. I'm going yeah. to buy one of those. <laughs> I need a winter coat. I was laughing because I just came in from a walk, and, it's, and I've, obviously I've been sick. And so I'm laughing. You're in New York. I'm in California. I'm in the puffy jacket. I'm inside. I know. And it's, uh, yeah. But, you know, so it's a, a partnership. You, Bob Hurley, obviously John John. You know, Bob is incredibly experienced at, at launching and building brands. You've been in the industry for many years in a lot of really important capacities. You guys kind of have a nice little dream team set up. That said, that's an incredibly difficult space to try and compete in. And I'm curious, what have been some of your biggest challenges or obstacles that you maybe didn't anticipate since you've launched the brand? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think it's... It, uh, it's no matter what, it's a lot of work. So, um, it's a, it's a new brand. Um, we're introducing a new brand into, into the world and we're trying to do things just a little bit different. So, you know, is in anything like if you look at past experience, you go, Hey, we used to do this. Did we like doing that? Is that a successful model? And we say, Hey, there's certain things that are needed. There's certain things that aren't. And so trying to do things different is always a little bit of a challenge. I think no matter what, like, the world that we're in today is post-pandemic. There's a lot of changes in the like in the world around us. So we went from a pandemic where we had free money coming, where people were just spending, spending, spending. We had ships out from Long Beach all the way down to the Mexico border filled with product that people supposedly wanted. And it was just like, hey, we need that. We need more inventory. Um now what's happened is that whole supply chain is starting to clear up. And on the other side now is there's a glut of product and people are saying, whoa, 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 whoa. So what's been interesting is just the world around us, less about what we are actually doing than trying to understand the global economy and what where it's going. Commerce trends yeah, have been affected. I read a story the other day that Nike and Adidas are going to produce 30 to 40 percent less product coming into 2023. Wow. And so when you just think about that, we're great. We're a small brand. It's, e- it's easy for us because, hey, as some of these big swings happen, we're a b- little bit less affected, but still affected. But, you know, watching the way of the world, it, it seems to not go in small changes. It feels like it sort of ping pongs from side to side. And so kind of understanding that where people are going, you know, the focus is that being said for us like it becomes really simple we just want to make really nice product and at the end of the day we think that hey consumer will decide they will vote they vote with their dollars every day if we make nice stuff it doesn't some of that stuff doesn't matter you know you just need to have the basics you need to have the product available on time and ready for someone to have and you need to tell a compelling story and that stuff that stuff is on us, yeah. right? The rest of the stuff is a little bit of crazy stuff. So, I mean, there's a lot of surfers that grew up surfing on the North Shore, you mentioned before, but like, um, let's say, you know, Jamie O'Brien, Koa Smith, Nathan, Nathan Florence, they, they chose to carve out a career outside of competitive surfing by leveraging their social media. John John chose to start a company instead. And I'm wondering, does that speak to his personality 
of not wanting to have to be the guy in front of the camera constantly being like, hey guys, smash the like button. Or I mean, what what's the backstory of the brand? Was he in a unique business position to be able to do this? Or did he was it just a reflection of him not wanting to have to feed that machine all the time? Super great question. Um, backstory was pretty is pretty interesting is so John was still on his contract with Hurley. And when basically the the Nike had sold Hurley to another company and and John was going to meet with them. And I think just from a philosophical standpoint, John and them probably didn't see super eye to eye. And John had this ability at the time to go out and kind of go other places, right? And he was a quote unquote free agent. He has a great relationship with obviously Bob and the rest of the Hurley family from all the time there. And I think there was just this idea of how much impact do you want to have? I think that was the question that came across to John. Um, And it was like, hey, do you want to be a part of another brand and sort of just, hey, you know, here's your board short, here's your T-shirt, you know, wear this, this is our campaign, this is how you fit in. Or is it like, hey, you can actually drive things and, you know, you can decide the products we want to make and how sustainable they want to be. And you can actually drive this and it becomes a long-term thing. I don't think necessarily had anything to do with you know, whether he wanted to be in front of the camera or behind the camera, any of that. It was just more simply, John is very involved in product. Um, that's one thing that I'm not sure people understand. When he sits through a product meeting, he literally dives in and picks everything to pieces. Uh, we're doing a program where we are using test pilots. So we're basically sending product out into the wild for people to test. And our members are getting random boxes says, hey, you know, try this. John is doing that at the highest level. So everything that goes to the market has been tested. But that is like, that's kind of where John wanted to come in is we have a product that's going to come out next year. Um, John thinks it's his best, the best thing that we've ever made. Uh, We've been working on it for two years and we haven't had it right until now. And he finally said his last trip, he goes, we got it. This is it. But it takes that time. And if you don't have a support team and a brand that's actually willing to wait to do it right, it just shit comes out. Yeah. And so that's kind of where I think he decided, said, hey, the question that Bob asked is, how much impact do you really want to have? It seems interesting because of all the surfers in the landscape, it's funny that you know Kelly Slater and John John are two that chose to start clothing brands because you know Kelly selling surfboards makes perfect sense. John John maybe selling wetsuits makes perfect sense. Either one of them selling button-down wovens or khakis, not quite as obvious, you know, especially considering that I don't think either one of them are really like looked at as, as style as icons. Style icons. And I don't I don't mean that with any disrespect, but it's just it's a much different situation than what Dane Reynolds brought to the table for former. Yeah. You know, and so I'm wondering, so I'm I'm hearing from what you're saying, is the asset that John brings to the table his emphasis and in, in interest in product development? Is that his biggest what does he bring to the table? Um so it's a couple things. Uh, it's a really, really great question. Um, as we develop this brand, you're going to see us focus more on equipment, not necessarily khakis and a button-up. And what we're doing is, uh, at some level, we're solving for problems that happen in John's life. So, you know, John just did a sailing trip where he sailed from Hawaii to Fiji. And then he lived on his boat for three months and surfed. And he's you know, there'll be a, a project that at some point he'll share some of that stuff. He did on Instagram a bunch. So people got to kind of experience a little bit of that journey, but making products for John that he can use while he's doing that uh, adventure 
we'll make that. Um, he wanted, which is this, it's the funniest thing is he wanted a hooded rash guard, which is basically just a rash guard, which is the kookiest thing to wear in surfing, but with a hood. And the reason he wanted it was just because, hey, I find that I can surf longer. I stay out of the sun. And then the next day, because I didn't get so sunburned, I can surf longer. And it's like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. We make it. We can't keep them on the shelves. They literally, I mean, if you went on to the website today, sizes are broken through because as soon as we buy them, they just disappear. Um, and the idea has been super simple. Is like, hey, let's make functional product that gets you out and helps you explore and be out in the environment. That's what our focus is going to be. And that's why John is so important. We refer to him as like our, our original test pilot. Like I said, as everything goes to John to try. Um, and so as that goes, he's also the hardest because you think about like where he lives, he's on the North shore. And so there's two types of Hawaii, right? There's the, the one side that is the, you know, beautiful, like Waikiki and the Mai Tais with the little umbrellas that we all like. Um, the other side is the more sort of rugged mountain North shore where the waves are crashing that's where we thrive. That's where John lives. That's where we're testing product. Um, and I think that, you know, as we go, like the more, the more development, the more time that we spend doing stuff like that, that's our point of difference. It's funny. You mentioned, I mean, basically he invented a category with the hooded rash guard and in, in retrospect, it seems so obvious. Like I can't believe that no one else would have done that before. Do you think somebody tried to do that before and it really just took someone as respected as John John to be able to make it fly? Or did you think he really just saw a space that hadn't been capitalized on yet? So people have made them for a long time. It's not like they they were out there. It was just, um, so, so there's a lot of products that people make that there's not really a performance benefit that you would know about. The fact that John wore it and actually would talk about, hey, it keeps me in the water longer and makes me feel not so uh, like drained the second day and I can surf longer. I mean, for a lot of us, you and I included, it's like, hey, I can get my five days of vacation. I'm going to go surf somewhere. I will put my head down and go way too hard on day one and I could mess up my whole vacation. Um, but with the right product, hey, I can still go hard day one and I'm ready for day you know, two through five. And that simple sort of thinking is what ultimately John was saying. He's like, hey, he's just like a kid, man. He wants to go surf all day, but he wants to like, hey, can we make stuff that allows it to happen so he doesn't feel as fatigued moving into days three and four? When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 
2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's LinkedInjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And I'm curious, what's your medium to long-term brand strategy in terms of him as an ambassador? Uh, in other words, at some point, hopefully well, well in the future, but at some point, he's going to kind of age out of being able to provide jaw-dropping content and all these amazing clips. I mean, at what point do you, do you almost see the brand as kind of a, what Nike did with Brand Jordan, where John becomes kind of the DNA and the soul and the legacy of the brand, but not the face of it. I mean, how, how do you address that? Because his name's right there on the brand. I mean, how, how do you get around that? No, that's really cool that you said that because, you know, you start to look at Jordan and PSG, one of the biggest football soccer teams in the world, are running around with the Jumpman on their thing. You know, Michigan, uh, the Wolverines are wearing a basketball player on all their outfits, right? So you kind of go down the same path and you go, hey, John's authenticity and his motivation is so pure, it can extend to a lot of different people and be a really interesting um, connection point into whether it's different athletes, different sports, different philosophies. And so, you know, as John creates his new paths as life goes on, that inspiration can find its way into a lot of different places. And so certainly that's been um, something we're already starting to, you know, John's starting to plant the seed You know, if you kind of go really into the most basic brand ethos, like what we're doing, it's we're inspiring people to get out there and explore and and, um, see their environment. And so I think that simple, I guess, prompt kind of goes across everything. And that motivation is it's pretty pure. Um, So I think that him motivating people that way, we can find our way into different things. 
And especially in the world we're in today is like, that's kind of, you know, I started when we were talking about kids and health, health is wealth. That's kind of what his, uh, his day-to-day world is inspiring people. So I know you are largely known in the surf community as one of the nicest, eternally positive guys around. (laughs) So I don't always, I don't wholly expect, (laughs) well, not always. Okay. I don't wholly expect to get anything less than diplomatic out of this question, but I'm going to shoot anyway. Yeah, go. What, what are your thoughts on the kind of unceremonious way that Hurley was liquidated and sold to this venture capital group? The legacy of what you built kind of just got destroyed. The, the team has basically been dismantled and now it's something you kind of just buy in TJ Maxx. I mean, does that leave you a little bitter? It doesn't leave me bitter. Um, but, you know, certainly um, I think that the, it's, look, it's. Could it have been handled differently? Should it have been handled differently? Um, yeah, I think that things, look, there's always a different, there's always a different path. Um, would have I like to see it end up back in the Hurley family? Yes, I think it would have been, ideally, that's what would have happened. Um, ultimately, there's a lot of money that was put into it, and they were able to sell it for more money than I think the other bidders were willing to go to. Hey, I understand that, too. Um, it kind of goes back to, there's a huge opportunity, and this circles back to where we are today, is the industry has lost its way. You know, you think about, we talk about this quite a bit, is like, hey, how many like major products can you say that the industry has stood for for over a period of time? You know, and we kind of go back to, and again, uh, we had the Phantom Board Short, which was something that was pr- pretty revolutionary at the time. I think the industry has kind of failed because what you just said is like, hey, we're playing down always. We're always playing down. We're trying to dumb it down, try to dumb it down. When in fact, if we just make it really, really cool again, um, that's where people will feel like they want to be involved and it will get out of where it's at. I can't fault anybody for wanting to make money. I certainly can't fault Nike for what they did. They were a great support to us for all those years. So I, I don't know if there's necessarily a quote unquote different outcome that I would have expected or I don't blame anyone. It just, that's what happened. And it's also created a huge opportunity for us now to where there are very authentic people who are living this day to day that are trying to create a different path and hopefully move people out of that and see that there is a, a, you know, a positive future for this industry. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you had, when you were at Hurley, you kind of had a front row seat to the era of the sponsored free surfer with Rob Machado. Yeah. And that whole business model, it almost seems so quaint in today's, in today's landscape. I mean, the notion that you could be a professional surfer and just maybe disappear for a year, make a feature film, maybe do some ads, and you would still provide enough value to a brand to continue being sponsored. Like that seems like that business model does not exist anymore. I mean, just the machine of social media has to constantly be fed. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, does somebody like Rob, you think he would have been able to flourish post-competitive career in the same way in today's landscape? Well, look at Nathan Florence, you know, look at Koa, Koa Smith, Koa Rothman. Those guys have done fantastic. Jamie O'Brien. But also, I mean, I think that's it. That's a, I guess I'm getting, it's, it's a different skill set or it's an additional skill set. It is a different skill set. Um, so, so going to the pure, like um, what I like about where it is today, I'll start there is that, Hey, those people have to be 
really freaking interesting and doing really neat things. Like, hey, those guys work harder than almost anybody. Yeah, I like, agree. So, so I sit there and look at it and go, like, there's part of me that that is actually the hardest path to take. And so would Rob be able to pull it? I think, I think if Rob had grown up in that world and he would have had Taylor as his side, like, you know, him and Taylor, they would have been making content day to day. It just, that would have evolved in a different way than where it did back then. Because I think the challenge that people have, and this is the hardest part, is you have to be really freaking interesting and super rad to make it in today's world because we see through people really fast. If you're not... Like talent is not enough. Being an amazing surfer is not enough. Yeah, yeah. And you say you like... People always like, hey, I've got something to say. Well, guess what? You've got the platform every single day. Yeah. And if you're not if you're not entertaining people, it's pretty easy to not like and move on and unfollow. I give Nathan and, and Koa and all those guys a lot of credit because they work their ass off. And it is not the easiest way to to make a living, but they've they certainly have found a, their niche and you know, obviously they're all incredible surfers, um, but it takes it takes more than that to to be able to make a living at this. Yeah, I mean that's what I think is so interesting about we'll just call the downfall of Hurley's. It was so short sighted because on one hand you're like, oh, this is worth all this money, and we can sell this brand. But the reason the brand is worth all that money is all of the culture and the authenticity that you put in with Rob and the whole rest of the team since it's been conceived. You know, and if you take that away. That's the soul of the brand. And, you know, sure, you'll make a lot of money at TJ Maxx for the next couple of years. And then what? No one will care. Yeah. And that's what I think, you know, we just, um, it's really fun for us because I think we see this opportunity is really connecting authentic people and product. And, you know, I kind of keep going back to this, like John being this test pilot, but being that direct connection to making great product. I think outside of everything, you know, you just like, the Huda Rash Guard is a silly example, but maybe fun for us is like, hey, that is actually a useful product that people are are going, well, shit, maybe that makes sense. Maybe I need that in my wardrobe, right? And as you come up with these key products and they actually make your life better, they're happening from an authentic place. I don't see that happening from those other places and that's fine. They can go make their money doing the things that they're doing, but ultimately we want to make things and the industry should be focused on making things better for people that are participating in the sport. And so the more that we do that, financial stuff will come. You know, if we make your life better by making a product that's better, built around, you know, a person who is testing it in the most radical environment, that's how we're going to be able to make it. That's how we're going to poke through. Yeah. They can deal with all the other things. And at some point, like whether they... Um, they're a business or not that's that's on them for us it's really it becomes super simple yeah i i made me think oh i just watched uh, supreme just dropped a feature like skate movie that came out this week and i tuned in just to check it out i was curious and it was like it's such an important piece of content for them because everybody in that video the skating is next level and the style and they're just like it's all shot on the streets of new york and it feels like dangerous and fun like it was 1995 and they're bloody and they're like being chased by cops Sick. and it's just like 
that's the soul of what that brand was built on. And for every kid who stands in line trying to buy sneakers to resell them for five times the amount, who maybe doesn't even skate or doesn't even know that Supreme's a skate brand, yeah. it's built on the need to have that legitimacy and that authenticity. You know, and when you take that away, it's just, it's another, it's a logo. It's a logo. It's a logo. That's it. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think also just the the whole industry is going through a bit of that. And that's why, you know, and I I haven't had this deep conversation with John, but just, hey, his philosophy behind why he wanted to do this over, he could have taken a lot more money doing other things. Uh, certainly guaranteed easy money, I should say. This was a, definitely a harder path, um, more challenging, more risk, way more rewarding for sure. But also, you know, it's, it's a really, I, I think when I laid out the sort of challenges in the world around us, that's also where we're seeing the biggest opportunity. You know, if you look at today, there's the board riders group, which is Billabong, Quicksilver, Ruka, Element, Von Zipper, DC, Roxy, huge, wow, all in one place. You know, to think that there was a time and place where Quicksilver and Billabong were like arch enemies, right? And to think that at one point, not not in some distant past when you and I met, like not that long ago, they you know? were yeah, they were just they would battle and fight over athletes and events, and I mean part of part of all of um, I think the thing that is missing in the industry is that battle. Those are fun days, like Volcom uh, sailing boats into the U- lineup at the U.S. Open with the Volcom Stone, and uh, you know Bob McKnight. Uh, doing, you know, 10,000 Quicksilver trucker hats to invade the U.S. Open. And we intercepted and and sent him and just threw him on the front porch at Quicksilver. And, um, <laughs> or even like Andy Andy running up into the Volcom house after winning a contest. Stuff like that is so interesting. It was great. And it was, it was about connection. It was about authenticity. It was about all these very real things. And we used to battle. It was, uh, we were competing every day. We were friends, but but we wanted to we wanted to kill everybody. We were just like, yeah, we want to get after it, and um, that is missing a little bit in the industry we have now. We've lost that competitive nature because you know when guys like Bob and Wooly and McKnight, all these people who started these brands and were forefathers in this like quote unquote surf industry, when those businesses were sold and or, and or gone to venture capitalists and whatever. The people who are running them are the bean counters or the people who aren't super well connected. And so it just changes the philosophy and it changes the way you kind of interact in day to day. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about the WSL for a second. Yeah. Um, they they seem like a really unique organization because they're, they're a private company, but they're also effectively the governing body of competitive surfing. And you know, from an outsider's perspective, you would think that it's very similar to to the NBA or Major League Baseball. But with those organizations, there's there's team owners in the middle who are largely in control of the athletes. Whereas the WSL, they pretty much own and control competitive surfing from the top to the bottom. Which in turn, you would think they would just be this juggernaut to be able to control the agenda of competitive surfing and surf culture. But they don't. And I'm wondering they've had a really difficult time trying to grow a mainstream audience. And I'm wondering, is that, is that a leadership issue within the WSL or is there something intrinsic about professional surfing that just makes it really difficult to try and replicate the business model of some other big professional sports? Um, I think 
it's really hard to replicate other sports. I mean, so there's there's always been this thing of like, okay, well, it's not on a schedule, it's not on a calendar, you can't plan it. So okay, they they built Surf Ranch and they said we are going to plan it. That is literally as boring as watching paint dry, right? Like it is so tough to get through one of those events. I think so. So it's not necessarily well might not be the scheduling, right? Uh, the events are long. They're too long. Um, if you made them, you know, a, what is a basketball game? A couple hours if from start, stop, timeouts, halftime, whatever. Can you make an event in two hours? Really hard with the number of surfers in the ocean and, you know, whatever. And there's been so many different iterations of uh, formatting and schedule and trying to capture waves and I'm not sure that the actual sport of surfing, how much it can actually change. You know, you there's been all these, these, hey, just put everybody on a boat and they can go to wherever and it can be interesting. I'm not sure that's the answer. Um, Are you glad that it's not your problem anymore? <laughs> oh, <glad>? dude. <laughs> well, because the thing is, is that pro surfing has, if you really break it down, the one thing the WSL has that's freaking awesome for them is they have world champions and they have stakes. It means something. So, you know, Vans is going to do an event uh, at the Pipeline Masters this year. And I think it's really cool what they're doing. They're trying to mix it up. They're trying to do a new format. And I think that's the right thing for them to do. I think if they just followed a basic competitive format, it would be like, why do it? Um, I think the challenge that they'll have is that there's no stakes. And you have to have the best surfers in the events to create anything that's super meaningful. Otherwise it's just, just another Another event contest. Yep. And so, um, you know, as far as the WSL being able to sell it outside of the sport, like I remember as a kid growing up in Chicago, I was a bears fan and I'd watch football. And the first thing I would do after watching the football game is we'd go out and play football. It's really hard for people to connect. Surfing is um, very aspirational for most people, but not something they fundamentally can just like, you know, we're going to watch an event here today and I'm going to run out and catch a couple waves and I'm going to think that I'm John John. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, I think it's always going to be that sort of aspirational thing and it will connect in certain characters. And again, like, Talking about where I think John fits in is, hey, he did this crazy sailing trip where he sailed from Hawaii to Fiji. Those are neat. I'm not a climber, but, you know, Jimmy Chin and Alex Honnold, like, you know, watching those guys do stuff like that. I don't follow it every day, but it plucks me. It pulls me into their environment. Surfing needs those people, but I don't know if the sport necessarily lives up to what those people are. And there's a tendency, I mean, surfers are so passionate about this lifestyle or culture or sport, whatever you want to call it. They're very passionate about that. And it's really easy to fall into this mindset that it's much bigger than it actually is. You know, it seems like, you know, surfing is probably smaller than competitive checkers or what on a worldwide scale, you know? And do you, was there, do you think there was a, a degree of, of hubris on the WSL's part that they could turn it into golf or football or whatever? I think everybody thinks it's really easy and then you start to get into some of the, the logistics. And, you know, I hear a lot of times, funny enough, is on other podcasts and people be like, why don't they do this? And why don't they do that? And the one 
people don't realize is that um, for better, for worse, surfing compared to a lot of sports has a very linear path to become a professional. It's not perfect, but it's, it's actually gotten much better and it's very clear and clean for a sport at size. It's actually incredibly easy to understand and easy to follow. But what people want to do is they just want to make it throw away entertainment and go, Oh, it should look like this. I don't think that uh, people realize the changes when you change something at the top, how it, how it affects the bottom and vice versa. Like the, the mid season cutoff. I mean, that's, that's a perfect example. All of that stuff. You know, everything, whether it's a, the final event into um, how many people are on tour. Um, anyways, all of that, I think, is is so interesting to me. And look, do I, I, I think I'm always, uh, as you said earlier, I'm pretty optimistic. Um, I think that the WSL is actually on to something. People hate the, the mid-year cut. I like it. I like the, I, I don't love that they keep going back to trestles for the final five. But I like this idea of, I like the idea of a final event and maybe it's a two out of three across the board and it goes somewhere different. I think that could be cool. I like the idea of, hey, when you get on tour, you know, maybe at seven events in, there's a cut and you narrow the field. I would really like to see a smaller field. I think that there's interesting things that can be done. But I like the idea of a wider funnel in the beginning because I like the diversity. I like different people coming in. You know, if you if you narrow it down too much, yesterday a kid from Morocco, Ramsey, qualified, first guy from Morocco, kid from Indonesia, Rio, uh, qualified for the tour. Um, there's radically different people who are getting on tour. You make it too narrow and you just get Brazil, Australia, and U.S. and Hawaii. And that's all you're going to get. Well, it's funny because... Most of the criticism about the, the, the mid-year cut is not, it's not necessarily from viewers, because like, it makes for a better experience. It's, it's tour, surfers. tour surfers, which is, I, I completely understand, but you know, at the end of the day, I don't know, is the WSL, is there allegiance to the fans or to the, to the athletes? You know, that's, that's an existential question. It's a good one. Yeah, I think, I, I think there's balance, but I do think um, the owners have been patient with it for the time they've had it, and they've sort of played and tried to keep it uniform for long enough. And I think commercially um, they needed to do something to change it up. Like overall, what, what was, what was your experience like at the WSL? I mean, was it more political than you had anticipated? Did, were you ever in a position where you had to make very difficult decisions that adversely affected people that you were close friends with other servers? I mean, is that an awkward position? Um, yeah, it can be an awkward position, but I also think, um, and you know, the way that the tour had been run. And so without having a final five, without making some changes like a cut and, and breaking the tours down, it's a little bit like, Hey, this thing isn't making money. And ultimately at some point it needs to either break even or make a little bit of money, you know, no fault of the owners for actually trying to make a business out of it. That should never be a, um, a problem, but ultimately like, Hey, doing things the same way and just expecting things to get better is silly. You need to make changes. And so I applaud Eric in kind of standing in front of the the fire and just taking the hits because he's actually made some really hard changes. Not everyone's going to love every change and I get it, but ultimately the changes are seeing some positive reaction in the market and consumers and whatever. Hey, over the course of the next sort of three years, they're going to make a lot more changes that, you know, they'll tweak. 
And I look at it super positive in the sense that, hey, if they didn't do that, there's a chance that the owners would just have been, hey, I'm going to stuff it. Like, this, this isn't working. And just close shop. Yeah. And what they've done is actually created, they're creating a path. And like I said, it's like, hey, something that happens at the top affects the bottom and vice versa. You know, one of the things that people don't realize is this regional qualifying to get into these challenger events. It actually expands uh, and allows people to not spend money that they don't have to fly around. I mean, kids were flying to Sri Lanka to get. You have to go to these QS events all over the world to try and qualify. Made no sense. And now they can stay home. They don't have to spend money they don't have. And they can actually, you know, A, go to school. They can do different things so that they're prepared. If they actually do make it into the back half and and can fight to, to get a seat at the table, it's way more impactful. They actually earned it. It's not built on Tom has more money than, you know, Joe. And so he gets to go. Yeah. So cool. Well, Pat, we always we always like to end the episode by giving the guests an opportunity to to plug something that they're not directly involved with, but they feel isn't really getting enough attention. Whether it's a book, a movie, an athlete, a cause, um, is there something you want to give a little shine to that you feel people should know about? So it's a great question. Um, you know, we we helped uh, we worked with the junior lifeguards in Hawaii this year. Um, we help raise some funds um, in Hawaii. It's pretty interesting, you know the. Tourism helped fund their junior lifeguard program. And for whatever reason, uh, over during the pandemic, they stopped the funding to to create these junior lifeguard programs. It's not a woe is me, certainly. But um, what I now with a son who's eight years old and last year went to junior lifeguards for the first time, I see this, uh, you know, and and again, kind of going into what I I see every day is just this sort of. Um, connection to kids being outside. It's really nice to, um, you know, these are people who are donating time, energy to make people, you know, your kids feel comfortable in the ocean and the environment and also build community. And so um, I would say to uh, anyone who has ever done junior lifeguards or uh, whether you can donate or send your kids or just say thank you to the lifeguards, um, it's an incredible program they put on. It's fantastic what they do for kids, but also the community. So it's just something that's sort of near and dear to, to my heart and from a personal experience as well. Good. That's, that's a great one. Well, Pat, I know you're a busy man. Thank you so much for taking time to sit down. Um, I'm really excited to hear about this super secret drop you guys are doing for Florence Marine X. So yes. everybody out there, um, check out FlorenceMarineX.com for some super amazing drops coming in the near future. Uh, if you're interested in checking out the book that we talked about that I put out, it's uh, you can get it at HI1K.com. Pat, have a great holiday, man. I really appreciate you doing this. Really good seeing you, my friend. Thank you for everything. Right on. Congrats on the book. Cheers. See you guys. Thanks for listening, and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Peter Buckingham with original theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan. Logo design and branding by Italic at www.italic-studio.com. Sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. And you can check out my photography at justinj.com. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.